0: The Bane Free Radio
1: Hour. On the podcast, one big score and a shot at retribution. The bad guys learn the hard way not to mess with American astronauts, and the search for a missing woman exposes a conspiracy that could threaten an entire planet. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirod. This week, I was back in the interviewer's chair to talk with DJ Butler about his new novel, Abbott in Darkness. This is Butler's first straight science fiction novel, and it is a heck of a debut in that genre. It features all the hallmarks of a Dave Butler book, realistically drawn likable heroes who do the right thing, even if it costs them, adept world building, and a driving mystery. This one will certainly please Butler's current fans, but it's also a great entry point to his writing, especially for the SF fans out there. But first, the news. A fresh batch of eARCs is hot off the digital presses. Let's take a look. First up, we have the Icarus plot by Timothy Zahn. There wasn't much money to be made as a trailblazer, searching out new worlds for possible development. Still, it was safer than the bounty hunter career that had cost Gregory Rourke his left arm six years ago. And thanks to his Caudolin partner, Celine's ultra-sensitive sense of smell, they occasionally discovered a medically promising seed or spore they could sell under the table. It was quite a life, uneventful and mostly legal, until Rourke was approached by two men with a proposal. Track down a mysterious woman named Tara and through her locate a secret project called Icarus. The challenge was intriguing. The unlimited budget was tempting, but Rourke had a more personal reason to accept the job the chance for long delayed payback. Next up is Travis Taylor's new near future hard science fiction thriller. Ballistic. A Russian ICBM site is attacked just north of the Ukraine border. The nuclear warheads are missing. A Special Operations and Intelligence Community Task Force is rapidly put together to respond, but where it should deploy is unclear. A fire ravages a cosmonaut training facility in which five spacesuits disappear, and the task force finds a cache of detailed schematics of highly complex rocketry systems. The task force reaches out to Dr. Amy Sue Harrington of the Missiles and Space Intelligence Center in Huntsville, Alabama. To Dr. Harrington, it all adds up to the unthinkable. Someone, someone extremely well-funded, is taking aim at the International Space Station. For Colonel Vladimir Lydikov and his team of mercenaries aren't planning to bring the ISS crashing to Earth, they're taking the fight to orbit, boarding the station and hijacking it. As the ISS traces its path across the heavens, Lydikov rains down destruction from above, effectively holding the entire globe hostage. With all the rockets capable of reaching the ISS currently out of commission, the terrorists are untouchable in their orbital perch. But Lydikov and his men have overlooked one crucial aspect of their intricate plan. That astronaut Major Allison Sims is on board the ISS, and you don't mess with American astronauts. But can one astronaut hold out until the task force can come to the rescue? And finally, Mike Coopery takes us on a tour of the mean streets with his science fiction noir novel, Trouble Walked In. Cassandra Blake, an employee for the Ascension Planetary Holdings Group, the largest and most powerful corporation in Nova Columbia, has gone missing. And her sister wants to know why. When questions need answering on Nova Columbia, Detective Ezekiel Easy Novak is the man folks turn to. He gets results one way or another. But what begins as a routine missing person's case quickly turns into something much bigger and more sinister, with implications that could affect the entire planet. It seems Cassandra wasn't just investigating her employer. She had uncovered a secret effort to excavate and exploit an ancient alien artifact known only as the Seraph. Soon, Easy finds himself trying to unravel a conspiracy that may implicate not only Ascension, but the cult-like cosmic ontological foundation and the highest echelons of Terran confederation itself. Can't get enough of Anne McCaffrey? To celebrate the reprinting of The City Who Fought, we're offering ebook discounts on all our McCaffrey backlist for the month of May get $1 off every Anne McCaffrey novel we publish. Sale ends May 31st and this discount is good wherever Bane ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Hey everybody, DJ Butler joins us from his Castle Fortress of Effective Habits. He is the author of over a dozen novels and they are fun for the whole family. They range from middle grade to, as we call it, general trade. Uh, he is here today to talk about Abbott in Darkness, his uh, newest from Bain Books, which is his first really like straight science fiction novel. So we'll hopefully talk a little bit about that. I should also mention he is an associate editor or consulting editor at Bain, and you probably recognize his handsome face and melodious baritone from the podcast. Uh, it is great to be on this side of the interviewer's uh, Zoom camera, I guess we would say, uh, to talk with him today. DJ Butler, welcome back, I guess, to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Thanks. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah,
2: it's really exciting to get to do one of these where I don't have to have read the book
1: first. Yeah. Well, you you sort of did, though, probably. You probably read it actually significantly more times than I did. Um, I've read many versions of this book. Edits and whatnot. Um, So you have done The Seemingly Impossible, which is write an action thriller novel that is about an accountant that gets into the commodities exchange. So congratulations on that, because it was thrilling. And yet what I just said is true. Uh, Tell us a little bit about John Abbott and who he is and where he finds himself at the beginning of Abbott in Darkness. Yeah,
2: uh, thank you. Um, uh, John's a a young guy just out of school uh, with an accounting degree and a bunch of debt and and a young family. Um, and, uh, meaning he's married, has two kids and a family dog. And, uh, John, John's background is, uh, his family is sort of a, a military family that talks about his father and some, and uncles being pilots or being sort of special forces and stuff. Uh, and John had thought as a young man that he would follow a similar path. Uh, but when he applied for the space force, this is something like a century in the future, Um, they discovered that he had Marfan syndrome, which is a a genetic disorder, uh, which results in uh, weak connective tissues. And really extreme cases, people can look, uh, uh, it can really dramatically affect your appearance. But even in mild cases, uh, how you recognize this, people get extremely flexible joints, uh, can bend their fingers back to touch their own wrists, uh, things like that um all of which sounds you know like uh, it's good for for party tricks uh the downside is that your weaker connective tissues include the connective tissues holding your internal organs in place and so like a violent shock can make your heart uh detach um from, from your body okay so yes yeah. Yeah, so, so no pulling g's right that's the thing um so, uh, so he's not the black sheep of the family, but he's, but he has to go find another trade and
1: becomes an accountant.
2: So, uh, uh, young, uh, young fellow, a lot of debt. Uh, and yeah, he like a up,
1: million dollars in debt, right? I mean, yeah. some, it's an exorbitant. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Inflation, it's, I guess.
2: Yeah. Well, well I mean, my, <laughs> life, my cost of education has got, it was stupid when I started. Yeah. It's, it's much stupider now. Uh, so uh, yeah, so uh, he gets a great job offer to work for uh, what's called the Sarovar company. Uh, Sarovar is a system. So in this, in this future setting, humans know a couple of non-human sentient species. They've had first contact. This is not the first contact story, but, but humankind, um, it's only real expansion beyond our solar system at this point is there's a single solar system Uh, Forty light years away, which uh, which is connected by a wormhole uh, that uh, to to the edge of our system and uh, in that planet, that wormhole are controlled by a uh, by a for profit company. Um, I, I personally don't believe in the sort of Federation of Planets or one world Earth government that we are generally served up in science fiction. So uh, this is a federally chartered United States corporation uh, responsible to the US Congress, okay? Um, and uh, so so the reason why this is a great job is not the salary, salary's fine. Uh, the reason why it's a great job is Sarovar is a very, uh, it's a system that's rich in, in some exotic commodities. Um, and uh, Sarovar company famously lets um, not all of its employees, but many of them, in, including its accountants, trade for their own account, trade for their own benefit. Right. So the idea is, hey, the job's fine, but you can also take your salary and you can buy sarovar goods with it and then ship them back to Earth and sell them. And this has been a path by which uh, many people have, have made their fortunes. Um, so this is this looks like a road out of debt, a road to a road to freedom. Um, and uh uh so that's the setup as as the book opens um i'm not too worried about spoilers so i will okay. say that, yeah. Uh, yeah so well,
1: it was, oh, say it now spoiler warning there may be spoiler warning. you should yep.
2: stop right now i will everything i will say from here on is a spoiler um so uh when when he arrives on the planet he's uh he's not he he doesn't get assigned where he thought he would be to work physically with the guy who sent the offer letter in one of the larger trading posts he sent to his little frontier post um, because his boss says, hey, there's, I think people are skimming from the till uh, and and you need to go, you're an accountant and I want you to go be my undercover accountant and go investigate and figure out what's, what's going on here. It turns out that in fact, there is corruption and there's not only corruption, but there's gun running and a lot of people are, impl- are, are implicated in it. And, and when they realize what he's doing, they start shooting at him. And we get in fact pushed to the brink of war with hostile natives who are tied up with the gun runners is kind
1: of the the direction the story goes. Yeah, let's, uh, what, um, I wanna talk about the, the natives who are the weavers uh, in a second, um, but I wanna kind of just talk a little bit more about the Sarovar company, not Samovar as I think I called it one time uh, on the podcast. So Sarovar company, um, you know, you mentioned, yeah, not wanting to do this sort of, uh, one world government, United Federation of planets. Um, so it is a for-profit company. And there's examples from history of this, obviously like East India company and things like this. And I just wondered a little bit more about how you created this idea of, of them doing, and also how that idea of, uh, letting individuals, um, trade on their own behalf and just kind of where all that came from in the genesis of that. And if you maybe think that might be some sort of way that we could ever um, promote and encourage space exploration and space travel, like in real life. Yeah. Uh, uh,
2: yeah. Or if, or if in fact, maybe that's an inevitable phase and and uh, we need to be careful. Um, so, so this is, this is very much, you um, Uh, a setting, an idea modeled on the great uh, trading companies of the uh, early modern era, East India Company, the Henry Hudson Company, uh, the Moscow Company, right, all all of those. Um, And uh, if if we think of them, the one whose history I've read the most is, is the East India, British East India Company. And this is whose tea the Patriots threw into the harbor in Boston. Uh, the East India Company. So, so the thing about um, the East India Company that is, is there's a there's a fundamental problem, um, and it's a it's a it's a social or a power problem, uh, but it's also a technology problem. So, uh, when Britain begins trading uh, with India, uh, it takes months. To get from Britain to India, and effectively, whatever out really maybe intending to do this, uh, Britain basically uh, turned the whole thing over to the to the company. Okay, so the company was pretty soon operating armies and making war on rulers in India and uh, and behaving like it was the government. Um, the problem being that it wasn't the government; it was an entity with for-profit incentives, and uh, and some of these guys uh, maybe took advantage and traded for their own. This was a thing the East India Company did: was let its own traders trade for their own account. Maybe that maybe that was taking advantage a little bit, but some of them took these soldiers and went and looted uh, local rajas, and that's like considerably worse, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's so, definitely
1: taking advantage yeah.
2: definitely taking advantage and 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 there were there were there were people um there not everybody was a, a despot or a you know a, a, or wicked there were people who there were british company men or government people who went there and converted to hinduism or converted to islam they fell in love they they had you know uh uh, wives who were from the region, right, and 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 um, and and tried to be just and fair and everything, but but overall the story is is uh, you know sort of gray to dark 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 gray. Um, so um, yeah, so that's so that's the basic setup. Saravar company, by the way, Saravar is a place name that appears in the Mahabharata, the, one of the great Indian epics. That's a, deliberate. Uh, a little uh, a weird kind of tuckerization. Um, and um, that, that's the big idea, right? It's, it's, uh, it's look in this sort of, the, in the age of sale, do we see a scenario that we are likely to relive as humankind is settling systems? And maybe it's not wormholes, You know, maybe it's something else, maybe it's not a six month journey. Uh, which, which was meant to, you know, the six-month journey it takes to get from England or from the uh, earth, the Sarovar, or so the wormhole is meant to be sort of like approximately an age-of-sale style time frame, right? Maybe it won't be six months, maybe it'll be 10 years or 15 years we're using, you know, uh, slower-than-light travel or something. Um, but, but, but I think, you know, uh, whether it is a government or it is a company. And I think, I think it's likely we're going to have companies colonizing, exploiting space. We're seeing that now commercially, right? There mm-hmm. are some advantages to doing that. We let people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk use, put their money at risk. So we don't put the taxpayers money at risk and right there are big advantages, but I think there's a big risk. And the big risk is, you know, what is the check on that person? Yeah. Um, and um, I don't, I don't, know that there are no answers but i don't know that we're really thinking about it either uh, um, so so that's kind of the that's kind of the the sci-fi setup on, on sort of the broader even broader you know, what is the story about um you know john john's trying to solve crimes uh and and prevent more crimes sort of the broad thematic question is how do you work for a company that you know is to some degree, corrupt, without losing your soul. Mm-hmm. Right? How do you? And and I think that's a um, I think that's a question that should resonate with a lot of people. I don't think it's an unusual feeling to say, "Well, I work with a company that is some shade of gray." Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I have to do it uh, because this is how I feed myself and my family. And how do you, how do you do that and stay a decent human being?
1: Yeah, um, we should say not Bane Books, though. Only, uh, oh, yeah. only <laughs> white hats at Bane Books. <laughs> never, never see Nick Butler again. Said. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Um, Gets rid of me. Yeah, well, one other thing, that I'm just kind of kind of ping some of my questions off things that you mentioned, um, was okay. the the Marfin syndrome that John has. And then um, he's also a, a, an accountant. So kind of both of these things, he's sort of the Hitchcock, I think I've heard you say this about him. He's sort of this Hitchcockian, regular guy thrown into the mix. I just wondered, you know, he's an unlikely hero, but he is a hero. Um, and I wondered where the, I know you have a background in accounting, so I'm sure you drew on that, uh, maybe somewhat, uh, and, uh, just for those two kind of elements of this sort of, um, again, the the Marfin syndrome sort of, again, an accountant, unlikely. And he's kind of a, I don't want to say he's a meek guy, but he is not a, you know, uh, uh, a fighter, necessarily, you know that's not his natural inclination is not to go mix things up you know or or um to to want to be in the midst of danger always and uh, what creating that character was like yeah you know. yeah yeah he um,
2: um if you go kind of back in the the archaeology of the story and like you know where where does the the idea come from back in you know notes and ideas and things yeah. that I'm thinking about. Um, I've thought um, for a long time that I wanted to write about a hero who didn't win by magic and also didn't win by shooting. Uh, and in fact, didn't even win by uh, trickiness and lying, but who won by negotiating. Uh, I think we have, uh, uh, heroes like that in science fiction fantasy. Um, but I think they're a pretty small minority. Um, so, uh, so, so fundamentally that's him, right. As, uh, can, can he shoot and does he shoot? Yes. He's his family. That's kind of his family background, but he has a lot of vulnerabilities. He's got, he's got two small kids and a dog, uh, and, uh, you know, his ability to go out and be, uh, uh, Punched a lot is pretty limited. A, a a hard blow, one hard blow could could kill him. Yeah. So um, so he so he he doesn't seek. He he's not a guy who's going to seek those solutions. Um, he's also. Uh, and, and and maybe maybe his Mar France has something to do with it. Although he, he he learns he has this issue when he's you know 18, 19 years old, right? So <laughs> by that time uh, big chunks of your character are already formed if you're if you're an ordinary person. Um, he he doesn't uh, he doesn't want power. Uh, you know, he's a he's he's pro-freedom. Uh, and and John Abbott and the and the story are very much um, on the side that uh, that the the only moral outcome is really a negotiated outcome where pe- where everybody is happy with where we all made trade-offs that we all fundamentally agreed to. Imperfect world, nobody gets everything they want, but we we all get mostly what we want, or we get we get enough what we want. So he is an accountant. There, there is uh, there is actual accounting. Uh, i i don't use a lot of beta readers but i did send this to a cfo friend of mine and say look just check me jace on the accounting <laughs> Am I okay here and uh he said uh he said yes uh so um you know because he because the, the because he's uh investigating whether there are whether someone is stealing and and he's you know uh And it's someone whose compensation is tied to revenue. So he goes in looking at how much is paid in trader compensation and how much are they, and he has to figure out things like when is revenue recognized for the post. And I, so the, you know, you get to try to, the book can't be about that. You can't have like 40 pages of this and, and you have to make it accessible to the reader. So I'm trying to sort of be succinct enough and on point enough that a general reader can, um, Either follow, or at least say, "Okay, I understand what the point is, even if I'm not totally following the uh, the
1: logic." So, fingers crossed. That's the, that's yeah. The well, I will say it made sense to me, and okay. I'm not the numbers minded guy, so I'm not saying it will to everyone. But I think you, it, I, to me, it was interesting because like I guess I joked at the beginning. It's like the impossible. It's a an accountant, you know, getting into the commodities trade, and yet it's sterling. But yeah. And you said there's gunfights and all that good stuff, which are obviously thrilling, but I think you did an excellent job of, I always love books that um, I think it adds to the realism in science fiction or really anything, but where you kind of get a peek into a world you may not be familiar with and, and can make it interesting. And I think you did a great job with the, the accounting side of things where you, it should, you know, it's, again, it's a joke it's accounting. I don't want to read about that, but it really was, you know, him peeling, he's solving a mystery, right. And, and peeling back layers and, uh, and to, to have that handled so well and make it intriguing is I think a great trick and something when you pull it off, as I think you do, uh, it's just such a treat for the readers because it's a world that we're not used to unless we're an accountant, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, let's talk about, um, there's, well, you talked about this idea of, of, freedom, uh, and uh trade and sort of actual fair and free trade being a way of mutual um benefit to everybody and so i will say again there's going to be a big spoiler maybe my (laughs) favorite moment in the book this comes towards the end so maybe fast forward five minutes if you don't want to hear about it is when he's talking to one of the weavers and he's and I won't give away everything, but he's, he's making this thing and, well, you could do this and you could do that. And, and then, and that's your best outcome. And you think he's going to pull it off. Right. At that moment. And the weaver's like, how about this? You know, it's the Michael Corleone. My offer is nothing. How about this? I crush my enemies. I take their goods. I destroy everyone. And I have sung about a legend is not that my best outcome. He's <laughs> like, Oh no, he's, he's stuck. But I think the, uh, the more um, Dave Butler and less Michael Corleone does prevail in the end here, but I just love that moment. And I thought of it. So um <laughs> anyway <laughs> that had to be fun to write anyway that was that was a lot of fun yeah 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 uh, um okay that was the big spoiler we're back now um so uh this is your first science fiction novel or first like what i would think of as straight science fiction i know i guess in the palace of shadow and joy for, for bane had, was technically science fiction but it felt like fantasy this is yeah. a straight i mean i would call it pretty well hard science fiction as bishops yeah spaceships and aliens and and all that stuff um had you been wanting to why now why why jump to the science fiction train and was it just that this was the story that caught your attention or was this one more intentional i want to try to write a science fiction novel or did you lose or lose or win a bet i don't know how did this come about (laughs) (laughs) I,
2: I, I should make up a story. Those, those sound like all good, uh, be, better, better explanations than I've, than I've got, I'm afraid. Uh, I, um, uh, I, so, so I guess two things. So fundamentally, uh, this is just a story I wanted to write, and it was the one that I wanted to write next. Um, I had been reading a lot about um, India and the East India Company the uh the the other piece uh, uh well okay so this is definitely a spoiler this is a spoiler i'm going to spoil something that's not even in the book now okay and this is the only, only the second time that i've said this publicly okay
1: um, and you heard it here second yeah. folks maybe first yeah, or second maybe first depending yeah. on when the podcast depending.
2: comes yeah. up it's a race you against larry um <laughs> so um there's a pigeon dialect spoken in the book yeah a a trade pigeon and um and and there are and there are humans on the planet who are not company employees Mm. and and the story that the company employees and the company tells about these people is well they were they were a colony ship they got here just before we did we can't really dislodge them it's fine it's a big planet you know we'll hire them for our menial tasks so there are these people who just kind of live it's a very uh there's a lot of open space a lot of open forest and and mountain and stuff and there are these villages of people um but the some of the people tell about themselves a story that uh that is different and yeah and that's and they, they say they've been there a long time
1: mm-hmm. uh yeah the kid says something like my great great grandfather like you mean your grandfather and he's like right. yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah exactly <laughs> uh and um and 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 john starts to like actually find indications that actually maybe that's right that maybe humans have been here longer than uh than the official story uh, indicates um uh and and one of the kind of pieces of evidence that he doesn't remark on because john is not a language guy john speaks english uh is is this dialect there's this pigeon and he kind of assumes that where this pigeon line a a, a pigeon is like like swahili it's where two other languages or more than two languages meet and they and they create a like a mixed language to 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 trade it fun fact arguably the most successful pigeon in the history of earth is English English there's an argument that it's not actually a language it's a pigeon (laughs) between Anglo-Saxon German and Norman French Mm -hmm. um so uh, so there's this there's this pigeon that from the beginning people are are uh, they they sprinkle their English with these pigeon words and and when John gets to where he's he's debating with the weavers that scene, um, uh he he really is stretching himself and and trying to make sure they understand him and and right and he's so it's uh, a it's a lot of a lot to get the it's a lot of pigeon there so uh, that pigeon is not made up by me that is in fact uh um uh it's actually classical egyptian so the, if you if you go grab an egyptian dictionary that with its uh-huh. english transliteration go through you'll find now i've tinkered with the spellings a little bit and yeah. like pigeon does i'm using very simplified grammar and syntax but even some of the syntax that's not english from the pigeon is classic it's the language of the hieroglyphs um which 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 uh which nobody knows john john to the end of the book basically assumes that where the pigeon comes from is that maybe it's the weaver's language or a version of the weaver's language and the answer is it's not
1: so this is a little (laughs) bit of
2: a easter egg exactly right yeah Hint, it, for, for for both
1: of the Egyptology graduate students who will one, day <laughs> one day. No, uh, that's great. I loved. Um, I wanted to talk about that because you do leave that question kind of hanging over, and which um, I always ask at the end if there's going to be a sequel. But if there's a sequel, I hope we see more of it. If there's not, then it it. Had enough there that david lynch room to dream you know you think yeah, about yeah, it, yeah. And it and cool but um let's talk about the, the weavers um oh, yeah. because and they have a you know they don't show up until about which i love they don't show up till about a third of the way through which was yeah. cool they're that sort of like um you know that you, you would be right if it was a star trek episode it would you'd see them and then they would cut to commercial <laughs> or a toothpaste or whatever it was back then but um <laughs> But, you know you've built this first act leading up to them and so when you see them it's so cool but they are um natives against yep. mother, maybe but maybe. um
0: yep.
1: to this planet and uh they are really uh what makes all of this the the sour of our company possible um the right. trade with them and so and they're really weird so i don't know describe yeah. them and then yeah. talk about what what it is they make that yeah, and all that good stuff yeah
2: and and as a very short aside um there are so this continent this this world has the planet has two continents and 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 all the naming it's all shout outs the continents are called napoleon uh or, or uh, bonaparte and wellesley mm-hmm. uh, the, the places have names that are all taken from the age of sail and and have uh meanings in in like uh, the history of colonialism and imperialism right that's a purpose right? yeah um but we don't see most of the stuff um there are other kinds of trade going on there are other species referred to that are sentient that we don't see and in fact there are other planets in the system this is saravar alpha saravar gamma is i think described as having um uh parks of uh, uh gene reconstructed dinosaurs and spas where yeah. company executives go on vacation and stuff. We don't see any of that. So we're we're here in western Wellesley, the northern continent, uh dealing with uh the weavers. So physically they are um they are radially symmetric. They're not bilaterally bilaterally symmetric like most uh earth life that we're familiar with basically is right uh, a left and a right side. You, or, you and I or a deer or a snake all have a left side and a right side that basically match, right? Um, they, uh, they're radially symmetric. They basically are three-sided and they're crabs. Uh, so it's like a crab with, with uh, six legs and six arms uh, and six sets of eyes on eye stalks. And they, they kind of like walk like in a weird rotating right. Yeah. yeah. They it's spin. Cool. Yeah. yeah they, they don't walk forward. They rotate as they move. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can get they can actually go pretty fast uh when when they when they uh get to full speed. And um and they communicate with humans using the Sarovar pigeon. Uh and they produce uh, a substance uh which is called Sarovari weave or just weave which is a, is a fabric, it's very light, it's elastic, it's beautiful, it's self-repairing. So it's, it's anti-fragile, it's like it's damaged, it, the fibers knit back together. Not infinitely, obviously, if you cut it in half, it doesn't like find itself right. But <laughs> tears will, will heal themselves. Yeah. Um, and so you've got a fabric that's in demand for fashion, but also uh, has industrial uses. It makes it something like a the diamond of fabrics right um and which humans have not figured out how to uh synthesize
1: yet um yeah there's this great kind of moment they discuss in the book like eventually we will figure that because this is true of actually i'm reading it doesn't matter about food but we figured out how imitation vanilla and then we don't we still have vanilla trade but and it's more expensive but it cratered it right and so it's like they know this will happen right like eventually they'll be able to make this on earth and we got to get while the getting's good i'm sorry to interrupt but yeah yeah. no no, that's great because that
2: actually connects to you know one of the themes and 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 john's young right so he's seeing his first real real job i wouldn't know what he did as a teenager but probably teenager type jobs right and and so he's coming face to face with the idea that some of his advantages really come from sort of temporary situations that are going to go away. Like that one, at some point, the weave is not going to be worth it. Like, like now is the rush. Now is when Mm -hmm. the getting is good, but then also the related moral question. Well, you know, does that mean that I'm just lucky? Should I feel bad about that? Uh, What should I do to try and, spread some of the benefits so it's not just me i didn't just i didn't weasel my way into something like a monopoly position and now i'm exploiting everybody
1: else right yeah well and there's also that because we know uh, from and i love you know because like you said he's in this remote trade post that does these trades with the with the weave, weavers and um where was i going oh and uh I love how we don't have all the information just like he wouldn't, it's, you know uh, there's legends, there's people talk about the great white, this huge great white weaver and "Ah, that's not real. Well, but is it maybe, you know, and um, part of it is we don't know for sure. He doesn't know. No one maybe even really knows quite how sentient those weavers are. And we're trading things like hammers to them um, and tools and are we taking advantage of this species? Do they really know what they're trading us? Is what we're trading, are we ripping them off? Or do they think we're they're ripping us off? Are they like, look, these idiots giving us this, these hammers for this for the worthless ground. weave, you know, right? And so, yeah. yeah, you get that in there, in the mix, so. Yeah, um, and
2: yeah. Uh, so so they produce this. No one really quite knows how or why. John comes to discover, you know, Quite a bit more about uh, what underlies the trade uh, d- during the course, um, but uh, so yeah, what what happens? And um, you know, he needs to get out of debt. In fact, what he does is he pawns his wife jewel his wife's jewelry. She, at her insistence, she pawns her jewelry to to get their nest egg going because otherwise, they got to save up salary for whatever. So he he needs to get some money back to 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 buy his wife's jewels back, and so he he's anxiously getting out there as he's looking to try and figure out if anybody is stealing and why. He's also trying to get out there with the traders and be involved in the trading, and so you get him um, you get his point of view on these scenes, and 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 there are these arranged periodic meetings where traders will drive out in a truck, and these are. Uh, you know they're a little like you might see at a wall street trading desk you know yeah. it's like some some uh some sort of like a, they're like a kind of a machismo you know uh, culture um and uh they uh basically go out and and the weavers will you know show up at the at the arranged meeting spot and stack up a bunch of weave and the traders will stack up some tools and they'll they'll go back and adjust their piles until they have an agreed, you know, trade, and then, and then, uh, 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 and then everybody comes away um, with with what they've traded for. Uh, and and John maybe characteristically mm, doesn't break protocol, but maybe does maybe does something that makes the other traders think he's a goober, uh, which is he tries <laughs> to talk to them, right? Yeah, you know, he, he actually, friendly, yeah, yeah, in a friendly way, make mm-hmm. give give a compliment. And the, and the, and the train is, you know, shut up, uh, get on the truck. Um, yeah, so, uh, so the weavers are a lot, are, are a lot of fun. And, and this is, you know, this is, we're, we're spoilers. Uh, yeah, the question is, we're giving them hammers. What's the result of that? But then, uh, of course, underlying the, the underlying mystery of money disappearing out of the revenues of the post is that people are actually trading guns. Yeah. and and traders are arming up some of these weavers mm-hmm. and uh, which the weavers are complicit in right they want to be armed uh yeah. but that seems like a terrible idea uh <laughs> and and uh um, and, and and it means that, that the traders are in almost the same kind of position as john right where they're like hey the mo- the getting is good now how do I get the most out of this right now? Well, I'm Mm going to trade a, I'm going to trade automatic rifles. I'm not going to mess around with chisels to these guys so I can get myself rich and get home. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what John's up against people who are willing to do that.
1: Yeah. I guess one thing I liked about it is you have, you you talk about East India company, which like you say is a a gray at best (laughs) scenario. And, and you've set up something here that's like that, but um uh, spoiler i guess in the end and i'm not in the end it's not that this is all resolved by the end of this book by any stretch but um it posits that maybe there could be if you had the right guy in john abbott um it didn't have it doesn't have to be an exploitive um get while the like I said, get while the getting's good and screw you i got mine and let you know uh, that there is maybe a um I don't know. Not to get political, but you you know there is an idea among certain people that there is no non-exploitive trade, really, and and this book seems to say, despite maybe our our not so great track record, always perhaps there is a way that we could all um, benefit. So um, I think John Abbott makes a a very eloquent argument for that um, as a character. So
2: there's a. I'm trying to remember what book it was and, and, and I'm going to fail but I can remember the writer so uh, it's, it's am pretty sure it's Richard Pipes I think Daniel Pipes is the son Richard Pipes is the father uh, the son studies radical Islam but the father was a student of the Soviet Union and Russia um, and, and I remember him um, I forget which one of his books I've read several of his books on Russia it might be like Russia under the old regime or something like that uh, and he talked about commerce, and he said um, he made this this explicit contrast. He said, "Look, uh, the free market as it sort of flowered on the western edge of Europe in the sixteenth, seventeenth century. You're talking about like you know the people in the countries, right? Like the Dutch, and then kind of East England, which is which is like twenty miles from the Netherlands, right? And mm-hmm. there, there's this." there's this culture that says, okay, you go out and you trade and you try to strike a hard bargain and stuff. Um, But also uh, that's not the only thing that matters. And as you are successful, uh, the first of all, you, you know, you have to play by rules when you do that norms matter and you, and you, you, it's important to be an honest person. And if other traders think you're not honest, they'll drive you out of the trade. Right. And when you are successful, it is important that you, uh, uh that you return that uh you know what you, you, why are you successful well fundamentally you've added value to a lot of people so they buy and sell to you but then who captures the biggest surplus is you and part of your moral obligation as a successful merchant is to um is to return that in the form of uh uh you know buying art for churches or uh you know uh, uh, funding uh you know sick houses uh for the poor or whatever right um and by the way that, that we we see uh that idea had a lot of legs maybe still does uh like andrew carnegie yeah
1: like
2: the libraries and the- yeah like like and led like church organs the guy did not believe in god and he funded something like 1600 church organs in his lifetime right um so, uh, so he says, he says that's kind of this is the Western Western Europe side. Not to say that every Western European, every English right. lived up to it. Russia. Sure, of course not. Right?
1: Right.
2: That no, that's not. I mean, we're talking about the East India Company, uh, but that was an ideal. That was the ideal? Yeah. People, right. Yeah. And people tried to enforce it on each other. He said in Russia, it has always been the case that the best, you know, the best deal was one where you screw the other guy, and it's okay to screw the other guy by any means and yes. what is celebrated as being clever and screwing the other guy <laughs> now both of those are in a way the free market right and yeah. so and so the question you know a in this stew of ideas we're talking about yeah. is is when we say free market what do we value you know is, yeah. it, is it just the absence of government control or is it something more yeah um and uh and I, and i think it's i think it's something more right
1: um, but I want to talk a little bit about his uh, family and then also, since we mentioned church organs, um, yeah. how you see a role, I feel like, um, for religion in the future, uh, although it looks a little bit different, yeah. um, Cardinal Rocchio, uh, <laughs> uh, so I just, one, uh, talk about his family a little bit and then and why make him a family man i mean i know that sometimes these are things we just felt like the thing to do as a writer you know where do you get your ideas you know i don't know um but then also yeah uh, how because he's not particularly religious but his wife is and sort of the role um why not include that dave why why include that isn't that gonna be aren't we gonna shake off those old superstitions i'm winking you know at you um well, it- sorry you know right um i don't know it was just i i I was glad to see that the approach you took to it so
2: yeah i um so there's a lot of good stuff to comment on there so yeah so first of all christopher cardinal christopher Rocchio is ruth's uncle uh there are stories told about him including the time when he uh said the homily or, or uh, uh officiated at mass with a shotgun leaning up in the sacristy <laughs> is reference that line so um so he's had an adventurous life um so um okay so so in terms of like what's what's actually in the book um this is about 100 years in the future uh i posit uh a something like another great awakening um and that's not referred to, but we do get a reference to the United Congregations or the Unity Church, which clearly has consists of sort of conservative uh, groups from different denominations, including Mormons and Catholics. I think are specifically mentioned, um, who have found some way to have enough of a common ground to uh, to be in a, a unified organization. Although they clearly have they clearly still have uh, um, differences. There's, there's a reference. So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a real thing that happened, I want to say, like three years ago in Oregon, where somebody was putting together a, 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 a missile for a Catholic event and uh, wanted to get some um, uh, just uh, like stock art of an angel off the Internet. And accidentally grabbed an Angel Moroni
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and put it on the cover of this missile. So just a well-meaning person doing right, it, sure it in the, in, for the church, right? Uh, Save as and paste it over right, here. Yeah. Flip it the <laughs> other way or whatever, right? And, yeah. And, but it's and some people were upset, um, and uh, and and so I trans, I, you know, I put I I said something like, uh, you know. Um, someone put an angel Moroni on a missile and, near, and nearly started the shooting war in West Africa or something, right?
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: To borrow that real world event. See, there's, there's still tensions there. This is not like, this is right. uh, not not a, it's not, maybe not even stable, but it's not an end state. It's not, they're still figuring it out. But but this this group, uh, we get references to New York having really gone downhill. And that one thing that's happened as a result is then a lot of UC people moved in to evangelize and kind of stabilize and build in new york right so this is all kind of part of the future and john's wife ruth is is UC. she's she's unity church uh, from the catholic side and krista her her uncle is a is a cardinal um and um so a, a couple things that we see in the story uh one she gets they get they're not in henry hudson at the sort of regional command center they thought they'd be in there at this post called Arrowhawk, at the very end of the maglev line like there is nothing beyond them except a couple of these little funky villages and weavers right and um and there is no church and so we this is mostly off screen but ruth sets out to basically start a church there right and um so in in her own uh way we'll see how many sequels i end up getting to write eventually but in in her own way she's going to be as important to this post as john is which he says he's having a conversation with um uh late in later in in the book uh and this is this is very much on the point you and i were just talking about but he says look this he's t- talking to somebody else and he says this stuff that my wife is teaching in church about you know love and helping other people you can make fun of it but without that the the idea of just trading doesn't get us anywhere yeah um so so that, that's kind of you know thematic and and John's not a godly man he's not he's not like he's not wicked he's just not a believer You know, he's nice. He's funny. He likes kids. You know, he's a good guy. Got a dog, you know, got a dog, you know, uh, he's very ecumenical. He gets a kind of a private investigator sidekick. Who's this sort of, uh, Jordanian, Jordanian, half Muslim, half Jew guy. Um, so, uh, um, so, so it's not that he's religious or that the story is religious. It's that about it's, it's that there's gotta be a moral grounding of some kind, uh, that that gives restraint and direction to to the trade and and that's that's where it comes from um you know from a storytelling point of view um I also wanted to make uh, john needs a family for at least a couple of reasons um one is it gives him vulnerability right um but two you know trade is all about about networking and, and when we have seen Space Traders, sometimes it's like in the Foundation novels where you get like a Hober Mallow and I forget the other one. I think two of the five original Foundation stories in the first Foundation book, one's called The Traders and one's called Merchant Princes. I forget the name of the, of the other guy, but, the, but they're basically atomistic, right? They're just, it's just, it's just a guy, a lone guy and his ship trading through space, and that's a kind of an iconic thing, right? But fundamentally, trade is about network. Trade is about a network. Right. Uh, it isn't atomistic. It's I have a relationship with,
1: right? Sort of. The, <laughs> there uh, has to be at least one other person, right? But, at least one other. Yeah.
2: <laughs> In fact, it turns out you have suppliers too, and you uh-huh. have multiple customers, and and you have competitors. And again, if you have a sense of like a Dutch style sense of restrained trading, that guy might even be your friend. Uh, and, and, and right. So it's important for John to be networked. And one way to help him be networked is um, especially in a scenario where he is uh, there's from the beginning, there's sort of uncertainty between him and the people at the, the company employees at the post, because he doesn't know whether anybody is stealing money or who it might be. In fact, he's sent there you know, expressly told not to trust his boss, his new, the, 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 uh, the find the CFO of the post that he's, I think the, the finance chief or whatever the title is, um, right. Don't touch, uh, or, or the audit chief don't trust Keckley. Cause that's my number one suspect. So, so he's got to be networked some other way. So even though he's trying to build these connections with the weavers, with other traders, uh, he, you know, I want him to start with connections. Um, And that's, you know, his first connections are his family.
1: One thing I loved about him too, which I think we've said, but we haven't really talked about and there may not, you kind of kill a joke when you take it apart, but he's really funny. And I just felt like I could hear Dave Butler making some of these kind of comments. Um, (laughs) You know, um, it's always weird when you're friends with the author, because you kind of like You know, I I, I also cast you as Hiram, you know, Wooly, you know, (laughs) in my head, you know, Uh, but uh, I don't know. I I love that you were able to bring, you know, I remember a writing teacher once said, like, if you can be funny, you should do it because it's hard in writing. And uh, I just love the humor um, in the book, too, that, you know, and it's it's often from him kind of being a smart aleck, you know, or or he Yeah, anyway, so it
2: was a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. So. And joking with his kids. And he, there, there's a scene where he he's invited. It's basically careers day. Uh, hmm. I mean, this is like a one-room schoolhouse at a, you know, it's a trading post. It's not even really a town, right? Um, and so a lot of the kids are from the villages. They're uh, um, uh, so-called country settees. So one of the words of the pigeon is SETI yeah. which means... Uh, guy or person so you know john sometimes refers to himself a little jokingly as a numbers seti or (laughs) right somebody's a whatever seti Mm uh and uh where it comes from is the classical egyptian word sahti, which means a peasant actually is what it is um so so a bunch of the kids are, are country setis they're 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 from they're not from the post they they're maybe their parents work there maybe not they just they live near uh and he he quickly uh he, he assesses and realizes they're not actually that interested in hearing about accounting so he just starts doing the uh he introduces himself as the family dog and starts yeah. having <laughs> as as the dog to kind of get their attention uh yeah.
1: so um yeah i i um
2: yeah he's a funny guy
1: yeah he's a funny guy. it's, it's uh, well, like i said it was fun to read um before we kind of like wrap up and I, I want to know if I missed something. Was there something you really wanted to talk about um, that we haven't touched on, or have we touched on everything? We've no, these are about.
2: these yeah. are uh, nothing. Uh, no reason to read that. It it's the whole book. <laughs> <Yeah>. oh. <laughs> it's, uh, I um, I think that's great, David. I think it's has it's, uh, uh,
1: got a lot of uh, a lot of uh, covered a lot of ground. I think. Okay. They, uh, yeah. Well, we uh, we you hinted at then um that this may not be a st- standalone mm. um is there do we know i mean i know it's not on the schedule yet but do we know uh, or will there be abbott in um twilight or abbott in <laughs> crepuscular rays of dawn what's uh what's next for john abbott
2: you have uh you have uh unraveled my titling scheme uh <laughs> well done um the uh yeah we'll see um i don't have any other uh, under contract uh i'd like to write more um in theory i'd like to write many uh we'll we'll see how it goes uh i um i mean it's in one of the things that's sort of interesting to see now uh it's very um uh it's very easy in our modern culture to sort of point at people who are uh who are wealthy and just make them villains. And to be fair, some of them are and uh, right. And maybe even make it really easy to, to point to them and say villains. Uh, And, and uh, we haven't for a while, had someone who's captured uh, the imagination of the public, like as a rich guy doing interesting stuff, except now we have Elon Musk. Yeah. Right. And like, like, I don't know. Rich guy doing stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. maybe he's like the Howard Hughes of today or
0: something. Yeah, I'm
2: not sure, but but he's you know he's he's self-made. He, uh, um, you know, uh, he's having an impact on technology and like basically privatized space, not single-handedly, but again, probably the most successful of those guys who were doing it. Right. Yeah. Um, On top of all of the other ventures and now also is very flamboyantly getting involved in the culture in other ways right Mm -hmm. um that's kind of the that's kind of the space not to imagine that john abbott is elon musk they're very different people but uh, that's sort of the where i want the story to go if i if if i have enough time to to write it right is to be like okay you know can can we have a guy who is all in he is playing with his own money he is he is at risk here he's not just taking everybody else's money and making decisions right yeah. uh who can do good who can who can interact as a peer even maybe with the congress that is purporting to regulate him uh and uh with other species right other sentient beings etc on behalf of humanity Uh, So yeah, if I get enough books, eventually it will be sort of a billionaire entrepreneur executive kind of story. Uh, Right now, he's an accountant trying to get out of debt.
1: Yeah. Well, so it sounds like there's plans for him at least. And uh, certainly, as I said, it stands alone. It was a satisfying read. Uh, I wasn't angry the next book wasn't out when I finished it, but I was excited hoping there's a next book. So I think you hit the, you hit the and and um, now you've given us a little bit more of a uh, a tease on on some of the questions we have um, that are left over. But but I, so I think you you hit the the balance of like I want more, but if I don't get more, I'll I'll I won't be mad. You know, yeah, you're not, didn't you're not really leaving. It. More. Yes, yes. So um, but we do hope there is more certainly. So everybody, go out and buy multiple copies. Give them away to your friends and family and strangers on the street, people you like, people you don't like. We don't care. Uh, By Jod, Abbott in Darkness, it's in trade paperback and, of course, all your favorite ebook formats, uh, DRM-free at Bain.com or wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so DJ Butler um, will be back. I'm sure to uh, to ask the questions, and uh, he'll be back to answer some questions. We have other things in the hopper in the works, uh, whether it be a sequel or, or something else. So, Dave, thanks so much as always for uh, for talking with us. Thanks, David. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the trough forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities
0: and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. At the beginning of the second week, they began putting all of it together. "'Listen up, cobras, because today will be your first chance to get yourself slagged,' Bai announced, apparently oblivious to the steady rain coming down on all of them. Standing at attention, Johnny tried to achieve a similar indifference, but the trickles working under his collar were far too cold for him to succeed. "'A hundred meters behind me you will see a wall,' Bai continued. "'It's part of a quadrangle containing a courtyard and a small inner building.' Running along the top of the wall is a photoelectric beam simulating a defense laser. Inside the courtyard are some remotes simulating troughed guards. Your objective is a small red box inside the building which you are to obtain quietly and escape with. Great, Johnny muttered under his breath. Already his stomach was starting to churn. Be thankful we're not invading Reginine, Novki murmured from beside him. We set our wall lasers pointing up instead of across. Shh! Now the remotes are programmed with the best estimates of troughed sensory and reflexive capabilities, Bai was saying, and the operators running them are the best, so don't count on them making stupid mistakes. They're carrying die-pellet guns, and if they get you, you're officially slagged. If you hit the wall photo beam, you're also slagged. If you make too much noise as defined by the sound pickups we've set up. You'll not only lose points, but probably also bring the remotes down on you and get slagged. On top of all that, there are likely to be various automatics and reasonable booby traps in the building you'll need to avoid. And don't bother asking what kind, because I'm not telling. Questions? Hmm? All right. Aldred, front and center. Everyone else to that canvas shelter to your left. One by one, the trainees moved to Bai's side and headed across the muddy field. Bai had failed to mention that a kill was announced by an alarm horn, and as each man's disappearance over the wall was followed sooner or later by that sardonic bleat, the quiet conversation in the shelter took on an increasingly nervous flavor. When the eighth trainee across, Deutsch as it happened, reappeared over the wall without triggering the alarm, The collective sigh of relief was as eloquent as a standing ovation. That
1: was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to DJ Butler for sitting down on the other side of the interviewer chair to discuss his novel, Abbott in Darkness. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Afshirirad coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.